Hello and welcome to edition number 1867 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording on Thursday the 10th of June 2021 at the Methodist Church in the High Street in Whitney. I'm Alan Ravel and I edited this edition. We have two readers this week, Anne Crawford and Alan Bailey. Our recording engineer is Gavin Smalley. As is usual, we have items taken mainly from the Whitney Gazette and the Chipping Norton News. And we will begin with the story about two new hotels opening in our area, which will be be read by Anne. Budget hotel chain Travelodge has officially opened its first hotel in Whitney. The new Whitney Travelodge is a 63-room hotel with on-site parking in Ducklington Lane, close to the A40. The venture opened its doors for the first time on Monday, the same day the group opened a new hotel in Farringdon. Farringdon Travelodge is a 74-room hotel with an on-site restaurant. Wesley Osborne, the Travelodge district manager for Oxfordshire, said, We're delighted to kick-start the 2021 summer holiday season by opening two hotels in Oxfordshire. With seven new hotel openings, we now operate a network of 592 hotels. Oxfordshire is growing at a pace. However, there is a shortage of good quality, low-cost accommodation in the growing towns across the county, which is why we've opened our first hotels in Farringdon and Whitney. These two new hotel openings will help attract new visitors to the area and also provide a spare room solution for local residents who have visiting family and friends. He added that the new hotels would bring great benefits to local businesses. This is good news for both local economies, as research shows our customers will spend on average double their room rate during their stay with local businesses, which equates to annual multi-million spends. Whitney Travel Lodge is being managed by Jack Jacobs, who's 24 years old, and is one of the company's youngest hotel managers. He's worked for Travel Lodge for five years, climbing the career ladder from an entry-level position into management. The Farringdon Hotel is being managed by Kelly Ennis, a working mother who started Travel Lodge in 2006 as a receptionist for the Towster Silverstone Travel Lodge in Northamptonshire. This week's openings take the company to nine Oxfordshire hotels, creating 35 jobs. District Councillor Susie Cool, the Cabinet Member for Finance and the Whitney Hotel, said the Whitney Hotel was especially good news at a time when the visitor economy is starting to recover. She said the Travel Lodge in Whitney will bring more choice to those visiting West Oxfordshire. Many families use travel lodges for their family-friendly setup, value for money, and in this case being located close to many local attractions like the Cotswold Wildlife Park, Crocodiles of the World, or Cogs Manor Farm, to name just a few. It is a positive sign for local residents and businesses that organisations like Travel Lodge are investing in our area. We've all had many setbacks in the last year, But here in Whitney, we're looking to the future. Next, we will hear from Alan with a story about the return of a popular West Oxfordshire music festival this summer. Hello, everyone. 
Music on as festival goers get set for a return to wilderness. The county's most beautiful music festival, Wilderness, will return this summer with a mix of chart acts, dance, folk, jazz, reggae and country music. The festival, held among the woods and lawns of the Cornbury Estate near Charlbury, will be headlined by DJ Jamie XX, rapper Loyal Karner and live drum and bass act Rudimental. The line-up announcement for the event, which runs from August the 5th to the 8th, follows a decision by many other popular festivals to again postpone their events due to the, the ongoing pandemic. The festival's strong programme of intellectual pursuits and spoken word performances will continue, including a repeat of its popular letters live shows, which have previously hosted A-list stars Olivia Coleman, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ben Kingsley and Russell Brand. As previously, the line-up is a tightly kept secret. Also returning will be its gastronomic Line-up with long-table banquets, which this year go fully vegetarian, vegan, with feasts cooked by Ellen Graham, Robin Gill, Lee Westcott and wild food restaurant Native. There will also be shows by the 47-piece Wilderness Orchestra Cabaret, comedy and an unusual Miss Wilderness event and talks and debates with, with a line-up including his Dark Materials creator, Philip Pullman, in conversation with BBC producer John Lloyd. A festival spokesman said, This is a return to a celebration of classic wilderness tra- traditions, a nod to old-school origins. The programme is inspired by the landscape and the natural world, and as such, is a true celebration of the wild, of adventure, and of the wilderness itself. Dive in the lakes, roll in the grass, ride a bike or a horse through the forest, take a wild medicine walk or foraging class, and build a den. Camp under the stars, and then dance like there's no tomorrow to some of the mightiest sounds on the planet. Unemployment is set to rise when furlough scheme ends. Thousands fewer workers in Oxfordshire were on furlough in April as COVID-19 restrictions started easing across the UK. Many pub, restaurant and shop workers returned to their roles as outdoor hospitality and non-essential retail opened for the first time since December. However, with restrictions still in place, businesses in other sectors continue to be hit hard by the effects of the virus. HM Revenue and Custom figures revealed that 33,900 jobs held by workers living in Oxfordshire were furloughed in April. That was 10,400 fewer than the 44,300 furloughed at the end of March. The figures also show that in April in Oxfordshire, furloughed jobs in the retail sector dropped by 3,010 to 6,090. In the arts, entertainment and recreation sectors, 600 fewer jobs were supported by the scheme. However, 2,060 were still furloughed in April. 
In addition, the number of hospitality jobs furloughed fell by 2,620 to 8,480. Through the scheme, the government pays 80% of a worker's wages, up to 2,500 per month. If they've not been able to work due to the impact of the pandemic. However, employers are being told they must pay a larger contribution from July. Across the UK, the total number of jobs furloughed fell by 900,000 during April to 3.4 million at the end of the month. The latest data show this. Dan Tomlinson, senior economist at the Resolution Foundation, which focuses on living standards, said the drop in the number of people on furlough was encouraging. He added that it is an indicator that the labour market is recovering quickly. He said, with around one in six young workers still on furlough at the end of April, the figures are a stark reminder of the risk of rising unemployment when the furlough scheme ends. Bledim Oak Bench Cut by Chainsaw Artist Matt An ancient fallen oak tree has been given a new lease of life as a carved bench at Blenheim thanks to the creative skills of a chainsaw artist. The 500-year-old oak came down beside a footpath in the UNESCO World Heritage Site's High Park during the recent strong winds and was found to have root rot. The forestry team decided to leave it in place as fallen trees contribute to the biodiversity of the parkland and provide a habitat for a range of insects and small mammals. As it was located so close to a footpath, the team commissioned chainsaw artist Matthew Crabb to transform it into a bench which visitors can use to rest, relax and get their woodland wellness fix. This design for the bench features giant oak leaf based on the surroundings while the majority of the fallen tree has been left untouched to encourage wildlife to live in it. Blenheim's head forester, Nick Bainbridge, said each of our ancient oaks has an extraordinary tale to tell and we wanted to celebrate this particular tree's legacy by transforming it into a place where visitors to High Park can sit and contemplate the world. Matthew's skills really are incredible and he has created a truly stunning work of art that looks amazing and really fits into its wider woodland settings, he added. Based in Somerset, Mr Crabbe works mainly on large-scale wood sculptures and has won a series of awards for his work. The Blenheim bench took about 50 hours for him to complete. Mr Crabbe said, Every wooden sculpture that I create is part of a progression that inspires the next. Each work of art is inspired by the particular properties and characteristics of the wood I am working with. Therefore, no piece, two piece are ever the same. The Blenheim Estate is home to the largest collection of ancient oaks in Europe, with some trees believed to date back more than 1,000 years in age. High Park was originally created by King Henry I as a deer park for hunting in the 12th century. 
Around 90% of the oak woodland is made up of oak trees and it is thought that at least 60 of these oaks date back to the Middle Ages. And the photographs in front of me are worth looking at, if you are able to, in the Whitney Gazette, I presume they are. It shows Matt has cut a section out of the oak tree, and it's huge line when you see him standing there and the, and the oak lying down, and he's formed a seat of leaves at the side for the arms. Wonderful. And there he is standing on the top doing the first cut, and I must say it's a work of art, and he's to be congratulated. Now, three items of news in brief. Writer and artist up for the Children's Book Awards. An author and an illustrator from Oxfordshire have both been shortlisted in the leading national book awards. Illustrator Alan Fatimaharan of Woodstock is in with the chance of winning the Waterstones Children's Book Prize 2021 in the Younger Reader category for the book Llama Out Loud. Author Francesca Gibbons of Burford has also been nominated for her book, A Clock of Stars, The Shadow Moth. Miss Gibbons said, The idea for A Clock of Stars has been with me since I was 12, and having it shortlisted by Waterstone's Children's Book Prize is a dream come true. The winners will be announced on July the 1st. Hospital has more LED lights. Nearly 24,000 new LED lights will be installed at Oxford University Hospitals to make carbon savings. The LED lighting project will provide energy, energy cost savings, reduced carbon emissions, appropriate lighting levels for work performed in different areas hospitals, maintenance cost savings because of the reduced need of replacement bulbs, reduced risk from failed lights and will also release electricians for other tasks. The Trust believes the installation of these new LED lights will save 563 tonnes of CO2 and 450,000 a year on energy bills. And finally, the hounds are off. The hounds of Haythrop Hunt are off to Swinbrook. After more than 120 years in Kennel Lane, off the Worcester Road in Chipping Norton's famous hunting grounds, they're off to pastures new. On the last day of April, several trips were made to Swinbrook, carrying either dogs or bitches to their new home. A spokesman said there were 72 couples to transport, meaning 144 hands in all. The kennel and stable compound now look sadly derelict but the Knight Frank sign indicates that the proposed conversion to flats and apartments have now all been sold off plan. Now, the third wave alarm as hospitalisations rise, and this is the COVID-19 we're talking about. Concerns have been raised about the rise of COVID-19 cases in Oxfordshire as health experts warn we may be at the beginning of a third wave. People in the county are being urged to continue to follow public health guidance as the number of cases locally have increased rapidly in recent days, with the Delta strain which originated in India now the dominant one. 
A total of 146 cases were recorded in Oxfordshire in the seven days up to May the 28th, compared with 58 in the week up to May the 21st. This equates to 21.1 cases per 100,000 compared with 8.4 cases per 100,000 the week before. Anne Safazer, Director for Public Health in Oxfordshire, said, Throughout the country we are seeing cases go up and Oxfordshire is no exception. To some degree it was expected that there would be an increase when lockdown was further eased. However, now there are cases are clearly on the rise, it serves as a reminder that the virus is still very much in circulation. We have vaccinated significant numbers of people, but by no means all of the population. The new variant of concern that was first identified in India is now present in Oxfordshire, with over two dozen cases reported as of May the 27th. This is being closely monitored as to the overall case rate in the county. Currently, case rates by district are Cherwell with 8.6% per 100,000, Oxford with 26.2% per 100,000, South Oxfordshire with 28.9% per 100,000, Vale of Whitehorse with 27.2% per 100,000, and West Oxfordshire with 13.6% per 100,000. Public Health England's latest report says there is early evidence to suggest that Delta variant could double the risk of hospitalisation. The latest figures reveal that Oxford's University Hospital Trust was caring for two COVID-19 patients in hospital as of Tuesday. They added that those most likely to be seriously affected are the elderly who have not, for whatever reason, remained reluctant to receive the vaccine. Mr Hasser added, with so many people having now been vaccinated, we are making incremental progress against COVID-19. But the virus is constantly evolving, as we can see from the rapid spread of the new variant plus a significant proportion of people are not yet vaccinated or have only had their first dose. So, we will need to be careful. Clarkson's Farm Show exposes outspoken TV star softer side. Despite him knowing nothing about farming, Jeremy Clarkson's new TV series follows the star during a gruelling 12 months when he decided to try to run the thousand-acre farm near Chipping Norton. This is the one he bought in 2008. Lacking the relevant skills, the 59-year-old broadcaster is forced to lean on a group of agricultural associates led by Caleb Cooper, a chippy farmer and a mere 21. Then shepherdess Ellen and land agent Charlie Ireland. The car aficionado test-drives tractors and unimpressed by the lack of horsepower on the reconditioned models, opts instead for a Lamborghini R8 with 40 forward gears and 40 reverse gears, which is so big it gets stuck on a barn door. 
Realising he's out of his depth, he calls in Caleb, who's worked the farm before, and berates him when he fails to drive it in straight lines, resulting in some very haphazard planting. When Clarkson decides the best way to keep his wild grass fields in check, it, he decides it's with a flock of sheep, so he visits livestock auction at Tame, where he admits, I know nothing about sheep, and I know how my mum felt when she was trying to buy a car. They all look the same. He leaves £11,000 lighter with 78 sheep. But the animals prove incredibly difficult to control and a bewildered Jeremy can only watch as they jump a wall when he tries to herd them and when four fall lame and need antibiotics, the vet jokes, I'll think of a number and double it. In one episode he shouts in pain as a sheep kicks him in the privates. We see a more emotional side of the famously fierce presenter when three of the ewes are scheduled for assassination. After it emerges, they have mastitis and cannot be bred from. He looks visibly upset as he drives away, the, drives them away to the abattoir. Clarkson not only has to contend with Armageddon weather and unprecedented flooding, but a global pandemic. He admits, I'm pushing 60. I smoked three quarters of a million cigarettes and had pneumonia. If I get it, there's not a lot of hope. All in all, the show is not for the want of drama. When lockdown strikes, the lambing season kicks in and because of social distancing, Clarkson is faced with delivering his first baby lamb on, on loan. And there is some friction in Chadlington when vandals set fire to some hay bales. But there's plenty of laughs in a series that also shines a light on how you actually do farming and just how back-breaking and shockingly expensive it is. Jeremy quickly discovers that a modern farmer must also be a conservationist, scientist, shepherd, shopkeeper, midwife, engineer, accountant and tractor driver, often all at the same time. The series Clarkson's Farm airs on Amazon Prime from tomorrow, Friday the 11th of June. Now, I've got three short uh, uh, articles for us to listen to. Communist, sorry, start again. Communist fumes over smoke-free proposal. News of a plan by Oxfordshire's health chief to bring down the number of smokers in the country, in the county, has drawn up the f this, this from national newspaper commentators. Proposals within the smoke-free strategy could include preventing smoking at outdoor seating areas, which restaurants and bars have started laying out this summer, or outside workplaces. The plans have drawn the ur of national newspaper columnists, including the Daily Mail Stephen Glover, who described the council as behaving like the rulers of a bullying little socialist republic. Deborah Arnott, chief executive of the charity Action on Smoking and Health, told BBC Radio 4 she was surprised at the reaction, as similar strategies already existed in the north of England. Second, 
Trick of the Eye Painting wins an exhibition's vote. An exceptional Trump fossil works by a former Burford School pupil has been voted the people's favourite in an exhibition. Centaur by University of Northampton fine art painting and drawing student Harry Barker got hundreds of votes in the People's Choice Award in the Rugby Open exhibition. Harry, who lives in Letchlade, attended Burford School, Sixth Form and Kingham Hill School near Chipping Norton. The photorealistic painting, which took two months and more than 200 hours, was the category runaway winner in the exhibition which was staged online by Rugby Art Gallery and Museum. And he said, people on the whole are amazed when they find out that this is a painting rather than a photo. And last but not least, makeover for town benches. As part of efforts to smarten up the township in Norton Town Council are organising the restoration of ten of the public benches in the town centre. The work, which include preparation, cleaning and sanding, and repainting in a workshop. The biggest challenge, which will add to the original budget, will be the effort to lift up, transport and collect the benches, as most are made of cast iron and weigh around 90 kilograms each. The Strategic Planning Committee agreed to set a budget of £1,300 for the old task and test out the best method with the first two benches. A stunning farmhouse in the West Oxfordshire countryside is one of the most expensive properties available on Airbnb this summer. As the unprecedented demand for staycation continues, insurance specialist Clandown Insurance found that there were 18 UK properties available in August at over £1,000 a night. While normally prices like this are only found for the most exclusive properties in London, the research found that this August properties across the UK, from a castle in Fife to a seafront house in Plymouth, complete with hot tub and indoor and outdoor pools, were all priced at four figures a night. Hollyhock House in Stonesfield offers a quiet countryside getaway for up to 11 people. The property has five bedrooms, seven beds and four bathrooms and boasts a barbecue cabin and children's playground. However, the luxury does not come cheap as it's priced at a hefty £1,600 a night. With almost 90 reviews all giving five stars, perhaps Hollyhock House is worth the four-figure price tag. The house is advertised as being great for families and big groups. All bed linen and towels are provided. The house is an arga, row-top bars, extensive gardens for you to relax and the children to play in. It is also billed as a great location for visiting Oxford and the Cotswolds. Stonesfield is advertised as a peaceful, quintessential English village famous for its slate quarries and the tiles which roof Oxford colleges. It has a village shop, hairdressers, children's playground, village hall, tennis courts and excellent hiking with the Oxfordshire Way on the doorstep. 
a converted Turkish bathhouse in Hastings, complete with its own bowling alley and secret cinema room, is the most expensive UK property available on Airbnb this summer, according to Lansdowne Insurance, costing a huge £3,538 per night in August. Now, I had the pleasure of reading about the Wilderness Music Festival, which is returning this summer, as it couldn't do last year. Well, our next report is about a festival that's going to be held that's been going a lot longer than the Wilderness Festival. Tradition continues with Forest Fair set for return. West Oxfordshire Conservation Charity, the Witchwood Project, has announced that its annual Forest Fair will go ahead this year on Sunday, the 22nd of August, at Foxborough Wood, Whitney. Celebrating West Oxfordshire's rural traditions, conservation work and heritage, the fair highlights rural activities such as dry stone walling, ferret racing, falconry and crafts while raising money for conservation charity The Witchwood Project. Miranda Davies of The Witchwood Forest Project says Foxborough Woods, the fair venue this year, was purchased and transformed from an agricultural field into a thriving nature reserve using proceeds from previous forest fairs. Since 2000, we haven't, hadn't missed a forest fair until Covid hit, so last year's cancellation was a real blow to everyone. Well, we've had a fantastic response from the community to our announcement that we're going to go ahead this year and are thrilled to be planning for it again. Founded in 1796 by three Methodists living in Finstock, the Witchwood Forest Fair had a long history. Intended as a karma counterpart to the annual Whitney Feast, as the fair grew in reputation and scale and it transformed into a raucous event aided by a legal quirk meaning it operated outside parish jurisdiction. Following a, st- a spate of rowdy incidents in the 1830s, the fair was condemned and prohibited. And once the 1853 Parliamentary Act of Disforestation placed the historic Witchwood Forest under private ownership, the fair was banned. The Witchwood Project revived the forest fair in 2000 to celebrate the rural traditions, arts and crafts and conservation work taking place in the area historically part of the Witchwood Forest. Today, Mostly in West Oxfordshire, the modern fair is a peaceful, family-friendly event that looks back to its 18th century or origins. To keep the event safe, this year's fair will be more open-air than previous years, with open-air gazebos and tents. We're just so happy it can take place again after a follow last year, as Miranda We've had a flurry of donations, offers to volunteer and positive comments. So we're really good and looking forward to it. The Mayor of Whitney was driven at speed of 20 miles per hour at a seven-year-old child 
but it was only a dummy, and it was all in the interest of testing a car's safety systems. Mayor Joy Altman took part in a live advanced driver assistance system demonstrated at Motion Data. The Whitney Company specialises in making soft foam or inflatable targets, such as pedestrians, shopping trolleys, or animals that are commonly involved in road collisions, such as deer or moose. These allow car makers to test vehicle safety technology, such as an auto emergency braking in a safe and controlled environment before vehicles make it onto the road for public use. Other soft targets include full and half-sized cars, motorbikes and bicycles, and cityscapes with inflatable buildings and junctions. Some products are used by Oxbiotica at Cullum Science Centre to test the company's autonomous vehicle technology. For the demonstration, the crash test seven-year-old child was made of styrofoam. Managing Director Steve Boyle said, by doing events such as these, we have to raise awareness of advanced driver assistance systems and how they can prevent collision accidents. Ms Altman said she was so impressed by the braking system it made her feel everyone should have one on their car. She said it just stopped dead. The technology also reads speed signage. I was very interested in the implications for how councils plan their roads. She added, it was amazing to see what they are doing. It is nice to see a small company in Whitney working internationally with car manufacturers. Now this is a nice story and I think you'll like it. Love could be on cards for inoculated singles. Singletons in Oxfordshire will be encouraged to get their Covid jabs as part of their quest for love. The government is now using dating apps to encourage young people to get vaccinated against the coronavirus. Tinder, Match, Hinge, Bumble and plenty of fish users will be rewarded with free premium features if they choose to display their vaccine status on their dating profiles. The company's partnership with the government comes as a recent YouGov poll reveals that nearly 60% of adults would either prefer their date to be vaccinated or would not date someone unwilling to be jabbed. Across Oxford, 62% of those aged 16 and over have have already had one jab, meaning the city remains one of the least vaccinated places in the county. Areas with the highest vaccine coverage are Risinghurst and Sandhills, with 89.6%, Barton with 88.6%, and Wolvercote and Cottesloe with 85.6%. Across the Vale of Whitehorse, 76% of those aged 16 and over have had one jab. Areas with the highest coverage are Shrivenham, Watchfield and Uffington, with 83.7%, Kingston Bagpews and East Hanley with 82.4% and South Wantage, Harwell and Blueberry with 79.5%. In South Oxfordshire, 81% of people have had one dose of a vaccine. 
areas with the highest coverage are Sonning Common and Kidmore End with 88.7%, Chinner and Tetsworth, Agbourne, Morton and Cholsey with 88.1%. In all, across West Oxfordshire, 78% of adults have received one jab with the highest coverage areas Burford and Bryce Norton at 100% of people. Chadlington and Wixwoods with 88.4% and Charlbury and Northley with 86%. Anne and Alan will be back with some more stories soon, but it's now time for the editor's choice of articles. And this week I've chosen an interesting story about Claude Monet's life and how visual impairment affected his paintings later in his life. This is taken from the Talking News Federation's Sounding Service. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hi there, Tanya here with a biography on Claude Monet written by Sarah. Claude Monet is one of the most well-known of the Impressionist group of painters of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As a group of artists, the Impressionists tried to represent the elusive quality of light on natural objects such as water and trees by using dabs or strokes of primary colour. At the time, This was a new and innovative style of painting and a great contrast to the period of realism that had preceded it. Whereas realism portrayed objects and people as they appeared in real life, Impressionists created elusive and sometimes blurry images. This led to suggestions that the artists may be short-sighted However, it's true that Claude Monet did have problems with his eyesight later in life, first being diagnosed with cataracts in 1912. For a decade, he refused cataract surgery, being concerned that his colour vision would be affected. But over the years, he became increasingly frustrated and eventually agreed to surgery. By comparing some of Monet's paintings of the same scene, for example the Japanese bridge at Giverny, painted initially in 1899 and then again after he had developed cataracts, it's possible to appreciate the difficulties he encountered in clarity of perception, colour and detail, and the effect the progression of his visual impairment was having on his painting. Monet was born in 1840 in Paris and his family later moved to Le Havre. His father was a wholesaler and chandler who hoped his son would join him in the business. His mother was a singer and a talented musician who died when Monet was 16. Monet was more interested in becoming an artist than working with his father. Whilst at La Havre Secondary School for Arts, he began producing charcoal caricatures which he would sell in a local shop. The shopkeeper introduced him to the artist Eugène Boudin, who began mentoring Monet and, in particular, teaching him how to paint en plein air, outdoors. Boudin was one of the first landscape painters to paint outdoors rather than in a studio. 
This was a pivotal relationship and it developed in Monet a love of the play of light on natural forms such as trees and water. Monet acknowledged the influence Boudin had on him as an artist, saying, If I have become a painter, it is entirely due to Eugène Boudin. They were to remain good friends with mutual respect for each other's art. In 1861, Monet was drafted into the army and went to serve in North Africa where he contracted typhoid. His aunt, with whom he lived following the death of his mother, managed to secure his return home after he became ill but made it conditional on him studying art with Charles Glair. Glair was an artist and a teacher whose students included other Impressionists such as Renoir and Sisley. This was a very important part of Monet's painting career, as he met and studied with other artists who were to become part of the emerging Impressionist movement. He also met and had a relationship with Camille Doncieux, who was one of Glau's models. They had a son together in 1867 and married in 1870. Monet's family did not approve of this relationship and his financial state was precarious as a little-known painter with the responsibility of providing for his young family. Although he was beginning to achieve recognition as an artist, the French art establishment was not enthusiastic about his style of painting, deriding it as having vulgar colours and appearing unfinished. This was a very difficult and personally challenging period for Monet, leading him to attempt suicide in 1868 by jumping into the River Seine. It was Doncieux who helped him to recover both physically and mentally, although he continued to suffer from depression during his life. Doncieux was the model in many of his paintings, including Camille on the Beach in Trouville, painted whilst on their honeymoon, and La Femme à la Robe Verte, which brought him recognition within the art world. In 1870, Monet and his family travelled to England to escape the Franco-Prussian War. Although they stayed for only a short time, Monet became interested in the work of contemporary English artists such as Constable and Turner. The following year, the family moved to the Netherlands, and then returned to France in 1871. The Impressionists were seen as a radical movement, embracing a different approach to painting with less traditional themes and more reference to contemporary life. Their work was often rejected by the Salon de Paris, which was the official art exhibition of the Académie des Beaux-Arts. This led to them forming the Anonymous Society of Painters, Sculptors and Engravers and holding the first Impressionist exhibition in 1874. It's been suggested that it was Monet who first coined the phrase Impressionism with his painting at the exhibition called Impression Sunrise, Impression Sunrise. However, Monet continued to struggle to achieve success, sometimes selling his paintings for as little as 200 francs. He faced further challenges and sadness in his life when his wife died in 1879, shortly after the birth of their second son. 
she was aged only 32. Monet became depressed once again, but took refuge in painting with a renewed determination to be successful. Monet's personal life was complicated. He was friends with Ernest Ochede, a department store magnet and art collector who went bankrupt. After the bankruptcy, Ernest and his wife Alice lived with Monet and Camille, and Monet began a relationship with Alice. Following the deaths of Camille and Ernest, Monet and Alice married in 1892. Alice was said to be so jealous of Monet's first wife that she insisted he destroy all photos and letters of her. Only one photograph is thought to have survived. Monet and Alice moved to the house in Giverny, now a place of pilgrimage for his fans, which attracts half a million tourists a year. It was here that Monet was to paint his most famous paintings and where he was buried. In his mid-sixties, whilst living at Giverny, Monet began to perceive colours as being less intense and vibrant, and he was diagnosed with nuclear cataracts in 1912, but he refused surgery. His paintings between 1918 and 1922 demonstrate the impact his eye condition had on his paintings. His work appeared to become increasingly abstract using large brush strokes and primary yellow and red tones but little blue. He complained that the reds had become muddy and dull and became unhappy with his painting saying that his eyesight was making him see everything in a complete fog and he destroyed many paintings. His friend, Georges Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, described this, saying, Monet would attack his canvases when he was angry, and his anger was born of dissatisfaction with his work. Monet destroyed canvases in his quest for perfection. Monet sought advice from ophthalmologist Richard Liebreich, who was very interested in art and had written about the effect eye disease had on artists such as Turner. He advised cataract surgery, but Monet refused until he was 82, when he eventually agreed to surgery on both eyes. He had been diagnosed as blind the year before. It suggested that following surgery there can be an increased perception of ultraviolet light, which is otherwise invisible, and this may have led to Monet's paintings looking quite different following the treatment. By 1925, Monet was satisfied with his work, saying that he was happily seeing everything again. He died the following year, 1926, at the age of 86. Thank you. TNF Soundings An interesting item there on how Claude Monet continued to paint masterpieces despite, or perhaps because of, his poor eyesight. And next is our weekly quiz. First, the questions and answers from last week, which I'll encourage our readers to shout out the answers to if they know them. 
First question from last week was, what is the Japanese dish of raw fish and vinegared rice called? Anyone? Sushi. Sushi was the answer. Question two was, which US city is named after an ancient capital of Egypt? Does anyone know that? Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you it was Memphis. Memphis, yeah. What Memphis? Memphis, Tennessee. And the third question for which film did Wet, Wet, Wet oh, sing God. Love Is All Around? Anyone remember that oh. film? <laughs> no. Okay, I'll give it to you. It was Four Weddings and a Funeral. And the fourth question from last week what is the name? And I'll give you a clue. Starts with P of the main muscles in the chest. Pulmonary. We had an offer of pulmonary, but it's actually pectoral. And finally, from last week, who led the mutiny on the bounty? Well, I've got Fletcher Christian down here as the answer. Bly was the the bad guy, wasn't he? (laughs) Anyway... I think Fletcher Christian did him him, um, no good. Well, Well, I failed. Okay. So, and now, and I won't encourage any shouting out because you need to come to these answers yourself, dear listeners. This week's questions, which all relate to the Euros, the football tournament kicking off this weekend. But don't worry if you're not a fan. The questions are about the flags of the nations competing, not the football itself. So, I'll start with what I think is a relatively easy one. Which country has a dragon in the middle of its flag? Question two. England and Scotland have crosses on their flags. So do four other countries. In the Euros, which ones? There are four of them. Third question, which country has a crescent and a star in white on a red background on its flag? Fourth question, which country's flag consists of three vertical stripes in blue, white and red, looking from left to right? Blue, white and red. And finally, which country's flag consists of three horizontal stripes in white, blue and red from top to bottom? Answers next week, as usual. And now to our notice board. There is one listener with a birthday this week. That's Mrs Sarah Gray of Whitney who will be 57 next Thursday, the 17th of June. Congratulations and many happy returns of the day to you. Now, the following four deaths have been announced in the Whitney Gazette. Herbert James Gardner died on the 22nd of May, aged 93. John Charles Hall of Clanfield died on the 29th of May, aged 71. Also on the 29th of May, John Frederick Cook died aged 87. And finally, Eamon Bull of Leafield died on the 27th of May aged 61. His family 
say in the announcement in the Gazette that he was very well known for his love of vintage items and he successfully ran the West Oxfordshire Steam and Vintage Show held in Ducklington. They also say he had a huge passion for ska music and dancing to that music and was known worldwide as being part of the Two-Tone Brothers. Now, I looked up their website uh, and some YouTube activities, and indeed, uh, they uh, were very well known, lots of followers. Our condolences to the family and friends of all of those four people. Now for another selection of news articles, firstly from Anne. The postponement of the country's leading gardening event has meant a flower power tribute to the NHS, which will be presented in Oxfordshire's hospice patients instead. An NHS tribute garden called Finding Our Way was due to be displayed at the Chelsea Flower Show in May, sponsored by Oxford University Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust and the University of Oxford. But now the Flower Festival has been postponed until September, for the first time in its history. £2,000 worth of roses due to appear in the garden are going spare. The blooms have now been donated to two of Oxfordshire's hospices, Sobal House in Oxford and Catherine House Hospice in Banbury. The project was supported by Brian Ashdown, volunteer head gardener based at Catherine House Hospice, who helped with the designs and the planting of the roses at both sites, as well as being helped by several volunteer gardeners. Diane Gardner, the chief executive at Sobel House, said, This is a really lovely addition to our garden. The roses are beautiful and will provide an abundance of fragrance and colour in the summer months. We're incredibly grateful to receive them, It's been wonderful to see our patients enjoying the gardens, especially in the finer weather, which helps make their time in our care the best it can be. Trevor Johnson, Chief Executive at Catherine House, also welcomed the donation of roses. He said, This is a wonderful gift. Spending time in the garden has so many benefits for physical and mental health and well-being. As we celebrate our 30th anniversary later this year, the 75 roses we have received are a perfect addition to our garden. I'm sure they'll be enjoyed for all at our hospice for many years to come. Professor John Freyter, consultant at OUH, is part of the Chelsea Garden team and was involved in arranging the donations. He said, we're so pleased that these roses have been found two excellent homes. After the arrangements changed for the flower show, we found ourselves with nearly a hundred rose bushes on our hands and wanted to find somewhere they'd be appreciated. I do hope both patients and staff managed to get some time to sit and enjoy them and I'm really grateful for everyone in helping to get them planted. Now, I have two more news in brief. Pub Giant offers fans free pints. A pub chain is hoping to lift spirits by offering a free pint to every customer. To celebrate the reopening of pubs and this this summer of sport, Green King will be giving away beer. Punters will be able to redeem a pint of Green King's Pale Ale 
icebreaker on Friday the kick-off at the Euros Games. The offer will be available at more than 1,000 Green King pubs. No voucher or download code is needed. Customers just need to say, you're home of pub sport, to the bar staff to claim their free pint. Chris Conchie, head of sports at Green King, said, well, we can't wait to welcome our customers back to our pubs to enjoy watching sport with us again once again. We've all been forced to watch sport from home, but we know our pubs are your home away from home when it comes to sport. We want to celebrate by giving each and every one of our customers a free pint of icebreaker. And the second story, different this time, Covid Heroes and Town Meeting. Chipping Norton Town Council recently asked everyone to nominate local Covid superheroes who have gone the extra mile in the last 12 months to help individuals or the community. And Mayor George Mazower told May's council meeting she had been delighted to see over 70 nominations and had been deeply moved by many of their stories. The council are planning a special invitation only, Covid Heroes Awards, drinks reception on Friday 9th of July 2021 at 7pm in the town hall. The council will write to all nominees in the coming weeks with more details. A shop, a shop is helping to rehome pre-loved toys. A family-owned high street toy retailer, which has branches in Whitney, Didcot and Banbury, has found a new home for more than 40,000 toys. The entertainer has announced the return of its big toy rehoming campaign in partnership with the Salvation Army following its huge success in 2019. The initiative is set to return as a year-round campaign to toy stores nationwide, in line with World Environment Day this week. Families are urged to bring any suitable toys which are no longer played with to any of the 171 branches. They will then be passed on to the Salvation Army. The initiative aims to reduce the number of items that could find their way into landfill by giving toys no longer played with a new lease of life to children living in poverty. Gary Grant, founder of The Entertainer, said, We're delighted to announce the return of the Big Toy Rehoming campaign in partnership with the Salvation Army. We had to pause the campaign due to the lockdown periods, but are finally able to bring it back to our stores. We know our toy rehoming is popular with our customers and many will have accumulated extra toys in need of new homes over the past year. And now, you listeners, to this Whitney Talking News, we've come to the last story of the evening. Spielberg and Hank's war series filming is confirmed. Filming at a military base in Oxfordshire has been confirmed as scenes for new Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks TV drama Masters of the Air. 
A source close to filming confirmed that the filming taking place at Dalton Barracks near Abingdon was for the highly anticipated Apple TV miniseries. Rumours began back in February after a planning application for filming a high-end and prestigious production at Dalton Barracks was submitted. The planning application also asked to recreate the airbase on the airfield so planes could be shown taxiing. This led to excited residents across Abingdon and Shippen suggesting that the filming was for the Spielberg and Hanks show. And members of the public have been told by those working with the production crews that filming is for the Second World War drama. The television series, based on a book by Donald L. Miller, is to be a follow-up to the Emmy Award-winning Second World War miniseries Band of Brothers and the Pacific. The series will focus on a 100th Bombardment Group, a unit of the US Air Force, which was based in Thorpe Abbots in Suffolk during the war. Since then, locals have spotted actors driving around the airfield in Second World War modelled vehicles, dressed in wartime uniforms and standing beside the model aeroplanes. While the production has caused upset for some residents, with one citing it as a real-life nightmare due to the disruption the production is causing most locals are, then, well, we'll support the filming. Masters There is expected to premiere later this year. And there's two pictures, three pictures, in fact, of a, 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 a jeep tearing along the runaway, uh, two people dressed as American personnel, in the green, of course, and then this, the middle one, a convoy of vehicles at Dalton Barrett shows uh, more of the, of the jeeps and lorries all in their khaki green tearing up the runway, about six in all there. And last of all, a model of a Boeing B-17 flying fortress, which I know were a huge aircraft and it looks very realistic. Well, that completes this edition. We hope you enjoyed it. And our thanks go to the Whitney Gazette and the Chipping Norton News for the articles we've used this week. Special thanks go to our recording engineer, Gavin Smalley. Thanks also to our readers this week, Anne Crawford and Alan Bailey. Our admin team this week are Doreen Turner and Shirley Rawlings. And our copiers and packers are Ian Rose and Mike Herbert. Before we go, a request from our admin team. If you have to take the memory stick to a post office, could you please request the staff there not to stick a white label on the pouch? This has been happening quite often, apparently, and when it does happen, it makes the pouches much harder to open and to handle. So if you could uh, do that for us, we'd be very pleased. Keep listening at the end of the programme for... Um, another info sound item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listening but for now I know everyone at Whitney Talking News would like to wish you well and so until our next edition we will say Bye. goodbye TNF Soundings 
features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, June 12th. The afternoon play on Radio 4 at 3 o'clock is Castle of the Hawk, a four-part historical drama by Mike Walker, telling the story of the Hasburg dynasty. In part one, Hawk Rising, a stranger arrives at Duke Randolph's castle and is drawn into the Duke's plans to gain power. 4pm, Radio 4 Extra, you can hear a dramatisation, also by Mike Walker, of Len Dayton's classic 1962 Cold War thriller, The Ipcris File. A nameless intelligence agent is ensnared in a sinister plot to brainwash scientists with Ian Hart, James Lawrenson, Jonathan Coy and Fenella Woodshaw. Opera on 3 at 6.30 is a performance of Mozart's final opera, La Clemenza de Tito, in a new production by Richard Jones, recorded last month at the Royal Opera House in London, the company's first production since the relaxation of lockdown. Egris Monvidas stars as the Roman Emperor, with Nicole Chevillier as the Machiavellian Vitellia. And in Archive on 4 at 8 on Radio 4, Stuart Lee, unreliable narrator, explores why humans are drawn to the distortions of narrative art. Can fiction tell greater truths than the bare facts? Sunday, June 13th, Desert Island Discs at 11am on Radio 4, renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma selects eight favourite recordings and talks to Lauren Laverne about his life and career. Paul Weller, live at the Barbican, 7pm, Radio 2, will be a must for fans of one of Pop and Rock's undisputed grandees. He performs songs from throughout his career and is joined by guests Boy George, Celeste and James Morrison in a concert recorded on May 21st. Drama on 3 at 7.30 is Inheritors, the radio premiere of Susan Glaspell's 1921 play Exploring Nationalism the erosion of fundamental American rights and freedom of speech. Madeline, grandchild of a pioneering American family, faces a moral dilemma when two fellow students are arrested at a college protest against a British colonial rule in India. And at 7.45 on Radio 4, Damien Lynch reads The Chronicles of Burke Street, a series of four short stories by Ingrid Perceau, following the lives and loves of the unusual residents of an everyday street in Port of Spain, Trinidad. In today's tale, Boy Boy's Story, a young man whose mother has died, is convinced he's being haunted by a strange spirit. On to the programmes now that are broadcast at the same time each day, Monday to Friday. Same radio station, same time, every day, Monday to Friday. Book of the Week, 9.45, Radio 4. The Devil You Know, leading forensic psychiatrist Dr Gwen Adshead reads from her book, co-written with Eileen Horns, about some of the patients she's met during her 30 years working in secure hospitals and prisons. In the first episode, Tony, she comes face to face with the first time with a serial killer. Composer of the Week at 12 noon on Radio 3 features Pauline Vardo and her circle 1821 to 1910. Donald MacLeod explores different facets of the extraordinary life of the French singer, pianist, composer and influential society figure. He begins with her early training as member of the Garcia clan, a family of singers originally from Spain. Just after midday on Radio 4, 
every day, Monday to Friday, all this week, Priya Kalidas' continues reading The Startup Wife by Tamina Anam. At 1.45 on Radio 4 is the popular 10-part series A History of the World in 100 Objects. Part 1, Maya Relief of Royal Bloodletting. Neil McGregor explores power and intrigues in the world's royal courts circa AD 800. Lastly, The Essay, My Deaf World at 10.45 on Radio 3. This week's series explores what it's like to be deaf in 20th century Britain. Flying the flag, Abigail Gorman, who struggled to embrace her own deafness, now affirms her newfound belief that deafness is a cultural identity. On to the rest of the week, Monday, June 14th, 2pm, Radio 4. The afternoon play is Making Peace. In Tessa Gibbs' drama, set in the Northwest Highlands, three women learn about inheritance, loss and the importance of making peace with the past. A new series of the comedy panel, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, begins at 6.30 on Radio 4, hosted by Jack D. Regulars Tony Hawks and Marcus Brigstock. They're joined this week by Vicky Pepperdine and Henning Venn. Radio 4 at 8, Return to the Homeless Hotel. A year after rough sleepers were given emergency accommodation during the first lockdown, reporter Simon Mabin looks into whether the operation has had a lasting impact. And at 11 on Radio 4, again, it's funny, it's true. In this two-part programme, Julia Sutherland explores how comedy can say the unsayable. Here she meets Janie Godley and Heather Ross, who share their deeply personal stories and challenging experiences on stage. Tuesday, June 15th, Vintage Comedy on Radio 4 Extra with The Goon Show. This episode from 1958 can be heard at 8am for those early risers, 12 noon and 7pm. 11am on Radio 4, the blind astronomer tells the story of Puerto Rican scientist Vonda Diaz-Merced, who's turning data from space into audio, making the universe accessible to people like herself with visual disabilities. Truly the sonification of space. On Radio 3 at 1, over the next three days, you can hear highlights from the Song Prize concerts in the 2021 BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition, which takes place this week at the Royal Welsh College of Speech and Drama in Cardiff. The Song Prize final will be Thursday, June 17th at 7.30. Back to Radio 4, though, on Tuesday, June 15th, at 2.15, the afternoon drama is Baselines, Mark Lawson's play exploring the challenges of the changing gender identity landscape for sports governing bodies. And in touch, as always, news and information for people who are blind or partially sighted, 8.40pm, Radio 4. Wednesday, June 16th, this week in Forethought at 9.30am on Radio 4, Ollie Mann presents The Meaning of Statues. Dr Jack Buella says statues and memorials matter because they show whom a society values. He's working to erect more to people of colour, including a new statue to honour black nurses and midwives. Also on Radio 4, the afternoon play at 2.15 is Return of the Citadel, the drama based on the novel by A.J. Cronin about medical life before the establishment of the NHS, set in a doctor's surgery in the Welsh Valleys. It's 1930 and doctors Denny and Manson both deal with unexpected events. The next episode is also the next day at 2.15 on Thursday. 
Unite is a new five-part comedy series beginning on Radio 4 after the news at six. Tony, a working-class left-wing South Londoner, falls in love and moves with the Imogen, an upper-middle-class property developer. Their respective millennial sons, Ashley, a disenfranchised Croydon rude boy, and Gideon, Eton and Oxbridge educated, are forced to behave like the brothers neither of them ever wanted. Starring Mark Steele and Claire Skinner. At 9pm on Radio 2, the folk show with Mark Radcliffe features a special playlist of bee and garden-related music as part of Radio 2's recently launched Big Bee Challenge, with classics from Johnny Flynn, Richard Thompson, Bill Fay, Maggie Holland and Nancy Kerr. Thursday, June 17th, Blue, Pain and Pleasure at 11.30 on Radio 4 is a celebration of Joni Mitchell's album Blue, marking the 50th anniversary of its release. Blue has garnered high praise because of the raw emotion at its heart, with Mitchell pouring everything she had into writing and recording it. Contributors include Emily Sanday, Beth Orton, Ellie Goulding, Greta Sacchi, Seal and Elvis Costello. A new 11-part series of Open Country begins at 3 on Radio 4 with Dawn of the Sea Lock. Wildlife cameraman John Aitchison enjoys a journey at dawn by kayak across a sea lock in western Scotland in search of early signs of spring. He encounters seals and otters, listens to curlew and skylarks and catches sight of a white-fronted geese who will soon leave and head to Greenland. 3pm, Radio 4 Extra, Jim Broadbent stars in Abdication, The King's Matter, Christopher Lee's dramatisation of the story of Edward VII's abdication. First broadcast in 2016, part two, same time, Radio 4 Extra, three o'clock on Friday. And back on Radio 4 at 6.30pm on Thursday, Sarah Kendall Talking Story is a three-part series in which Sarah Kendall talks to different storytellers about what story means to them and how they develop their own style of storytelling in their respective mediums. She begins with stand-up and actor-turned-screenwriter and director Chris Addison. Lastly, we come to Friday, June 18th, and at 9.30am or 4.30pm in the afternoon on Radio 4 Extra, what about to the Manor Born, the 1997 radio version of Peter Spence TV sitcom, with Penelope Keith reprising her role as Audrey Forbes Hamilton, obliged to relinquish her country pile to a nouveau riche supermarket boss. It's in ten parts, with Angela Thorne, Keith Barron, and others. The afternoon concert at two on Radio 3 is a live concert by the BBC Philharmonic, which includes the UK premiere of a piece by Dutch composer Theo Verby, plus further recent recordings by the orchestra of works by Copeland, Janacek, Tchaikovsky, Hindemith and Sibelius. The Classic FM concert with John Suchet at 8 features the Los Angeles Philharmonic recorded live at the Walt Disney Concert Hall with music by Mahler, Beethoven and Mozart. Finally, at 8.30, on the BBC World Service, Crowd Science, Marnie Chesterton does her best to answer the question, how do you weigh the Earth? Using a 400-year-old equation and a set of bathroom scales, and with a little help from the moon. TNF Soundings. 